Thank you, Lois. I'd like to have us turn to our text uh, for this morning, which is Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Luke chapter 17, 11 through 19, that's on page 850, if you're following along in the Bibles in the pews. And we're continuing our sermon series looking at the Gospel of Luke together, and we are up to chapter 17 here. And this is what the gospel writer Luke writes in verses 11 through 19 there. He says, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. And they stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Matt Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were on their way, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he had been healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, we love stories about outsiders. Uh, From Jackie Robinson changing baseball to Steve Jobs taking the tech world by storm to Venus and Serena Williams revolutionizing the game of tennis, outsiders, underdogs, and trailblazers provide some of the most compelling stories for us. Well, here in our text for this morning, Jesus meets an outsider too. Uh, In fact, he's actually a double outsider. That's because Jesus meets a Samaritan leper here in this text. And in that uh, culture, in first century Jewish culture, either of those two things, either being a leper or being a Samaritan, were enough to keep you on the outskirts, on the edges, on the fringe of society. And yet this man wasn't just one or the other of those two things. He was actually both. Now, the story here starts innocently enough. We uh, talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at the end of Luke chapter 9, but Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem at this point in this gospel. He's on his way to the great city, to the last week of his life. Ultimately, he's on his way to the cross here. Uh, And he's made it a little ways already. That's because in our text for this morning, he's already at the southern border of Galilee, which was Jesus' home region and also the region where he did most of his ministry. Um, And when we come across him here in this text, Jesus is kind of threading his way along the border of Galilee and the region just to the south of it, the region of Samaria. As Luke writes in verse 11 here, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, Now, that might not mean a a whole lot to us uh, today, but that seemingly throwaway comment by Luke actually would have held quite a bit of significance for his original readers. That's because the Jews, the people who inhabited Galilee up in the north and then Judea to the south, did not get along with the Samaritans who were sandwiched right there sort of in the middle on that blue part of the map. So it was mostly Jewish people who lived up in that kind of beige color area in Galilee and then down in that sort of burnt orange color, but they did not get along with the folks in 
Samaria. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. Uh, The two biggest, though, had to do first with history and then second with religion. We'll talk about the religion piece a little later, so for now we'll just touch on the history. Uh, Put simply, the Samaritans were descendants of the people who lived in Israel after the Assyrian Empire invaded and conquered their, their kingdom in 722 BC. After the victory, the Assyrian king, Sargon II, did what he always did after taking over another kingdom. He rounded up all the native Israelites who lived in that region known as Samaria and then deported them to other places in his empire. At least, he deported most of them. It seems he left some Israelites behind, probably the, the poor, the old, and those who didn't have much value to him as part of his government or economy. And then what he did was he also imported others from other places uh, to live there with them in Samaria. You can read more about how it all worked in 2 Kings chapter 17. Well, over time, those two groups, the Jewish castoffs who were left behind in Samaria, and then all of these other people who had come from other parts of the Assyrian Empire, they merged together. They intermarried, combined their families and communities, and became one new group of people living there in Samaria. Half Jewish, half something else, the Samaritans were an entirely new group of people distinct from the ethnically Jewish Israelites who used to live there but also different from all of those other people, groups, and cultures that the Assyrians had imported into the land. As such, when the Jewish people from the southern kingdom of Judah returned from their own exile, this time in Babylon, they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Viewing them as impure half-breeds, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans, refused to associate with them, and even, in many cases, refused to travel through their territory if they were heading down to Jerusalem from Galilee. They would actually cross over the Jordan River and go down that side of the river before then coming back over near Jericho. They would not travel through Samaria. And so that's why this seemingly throwaway comment by Luke here about Jesus sticking to the border between Galilee and Samaria is actually pretty significant. While Jesus did indeed make a few forays into Samaria during his ministry, something that he probably would have gotten uh, gotten in some hot water for, um, here he's doing what any good Jewish person would do. He's sticking to the border, staying on his side, like Michigan folks who I'm told would rather take the long way around our neighbor to the south rather than driving through Ohio. Jesus is staying away from all the outcasts and outsiders just to the south on his way to Jerusalem. Along the way though, a different group of outsiders comes to find him. In verses 12 through 13, Luke writes, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It's important to understand that at the time, leprosy was sort of a catch-all term for a number of different skin diseases. While that word usually refers to a specific disease these days, Hansen's disease, in the Bible it could have referred to any number of disorders or abnormalities with someone's skin. In fact, Leviticus 13 and 14 contain whole lists of the conditions that would have been considered leprosy according to the Old Testament purity laws. When you read those laws, though, in Leviticus 13 and 14, you find something interesting. Because one of the things that you see is that those laws about those different skin diseases aren't actually really about the disease part. That's a piece of the puzzle. But the bigger part was about purity. 
religious purity to be exact. That's actually what the Bible's laws and codes surrounding leprosy were about. They weren't so much about limiting or curing uh, the disease itself as they were about limiting or curing the impurity that came along with those diseases. What that means is that the disease itself wasn't really the problem. Rather, the problem was the impurity that resulted from it. As Joel Green writes in his commentary on this passage, leprosy was a term used to designate a number of skin diseases. So the fundamental problem of these 10 lepers was in all likelihood not a malady or a disease that was physically life-threatening. Instead, they were faced with a debilitating social disorder, regarded as living under a divine curse and as ritually unclean. Whether they were Jew or Samaritan, it does not matter. They were relegated to the margins of society. So lepers, too, just like Samaritans, were outsiders, forced to live on their own uh, in distinct colonies far from the rest of society. Lepers were banned from the temple. They were banned from participating in the Jewish religious system. They were excluded from their families and communities, and they were forced into the only kind of work that would have been seen as acceptable for them. They were forced to be beggars. As Fred Craddock writes, what Luke says here corresponds with what we know of lepers. They kept distant from non-lepers. They formed their own communities and they positioned themselves near traffic ways in order to make appeals for charity. And here in this case, this group of 10 lepers comes to Jesus and they make an appeal of him. Jesus, master, have pity on us. And Jesus does. Luke records Jesus' response to the group in verse 14. When he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. That's all it takes. We've actually seen this a couple times uh, so far as we've made our way through Luke's gospel. But that's really all that Jesus needs in order to heal someone. All it takes is for him to speak a word for those who are being healed, to have a bit of faith in him, and then a willingness to do whatever it is Jesus tells them. And yet, this is where I think we need to actually slow things down for a bit as we look at this text together. Because this, I think, is where the implications of this text begin to make themselves clear. And there are at least four of them. Four implications from this text. Four things Luke wants us to see so that we can know and understand Jesus better here. And so let's take each of them in turn. The first one, the first implication of this text has to do with trust. Notice that Jesus doesn't do any of the things that he normally does when healing someone here. You know, he doesn't walk up to these 10 lepers, place his hands on them, uh, recite some sort of blessing over them, or go tell them to to wash somewhere in, in a pool or a river. Instead, he simply tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. And we might ask, why? Why would he tell them to go to the priests? What is a priest going to do with a leper? Well, Jesus tells them to do that that, because that's actually what a leper would have been required to do if and when they were healed. Again, the details are in Leviticus 13 and 14. But put simply, if a leper was cleansed of their leprosy, they were supposed to go to the priest, show them the part of their skin that had had the leprosy, and then the priest would declare them healed, and as a result of that, cleansed and religiously pure again. And yet here's Jesus telling these lepers to go and do that, to go and show themselves to the priest before they've actually been cleansed. 
He hasn't healed them yet. That happens as these lepers have already left, as they're on their way. Here, though, when Jesus encounters them and gives them this command, they still have leprosy, and yet Jesus sends them to the priest anyway. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he's asking for a tremendous amount of trust from these 10 lepers. In essence, he's telling them, trust me. Trust me in the things you can see. Trust me also in the things that you don't see. Trust me even in the things that you want to see, but that aren't a reality yet. And it pays off because again, as Luke writes, as they went on their way, they were cleansed. I think that's something that Luke wants us to understand still today too. That's the implication here, at least part of it, is that it's not just these 10 lepers back then who are called to trust Jesus. We as his disciples still today are called to trust him in the same sort of way. I'll admit that I struggle with that sometimes. I'm kind of somebody who likes to plan things out, have all the details arranged before I take the first step, before I start anything new. And so it's kind of hard for me to start doing something without a clear path forward, without knowing how it's all going to work out or how it's all going to to play out. It's hard for me to take the first step before I know where it will lead, and I'm sure I'm not the only one here this morning who struggles with that. And yet that's part of what Jesus is telling us here. Trust me. Whatever you're facing, whatever's going on, whatever you're dealing with, trust me in the midst of it. That's the first implication I think we see here, a call to trust in Jesus. The second implication has to do with worship. That's because in verse 15, Luke writes, one of them, the lepers, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. First, this is where Luke kind of springs a surprise on his, on his readers. He sort of tacks on that last part, and he was a Samaritan. Um, like we already talked about, that would have caught some of his readers off guard here. Because like we said, Jews and Samaritans did not mix. Well, Jesus was a Jewish man, and yet this leper who comes back to thank him was a Samaritan. Um, and as surprising as that would have been, for Luke's readers. What the Samaritan leper does when he comes back would have been even more surprising. That's because while the text says he praised God, threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, what that really means, and Luke's original readers would have picked up on this, is that this uh, Samaritan former leper was actually worshiping Jesus. And that's interesting for at least two main reasons. First, it's interesting for the obvious reason, which is that by worshiping Jesus, the Samaritan clearly sees something about Jesus that that means he's more than just a human being. Whether he had all the theology of who Jesus was figured out, which I'm sure he didn't, at the very least, the Samaritan's actions tell us that he saw or recognized something divine in Jesus, something worthy of worship, something glorious. But the second reason the Samaritan's worship is interesting is precisely because he's a Samaritan. Like we said earlier, there were two main reasons Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. The first was historical, which we talked about earlier, but the second was religious. And that's because while Jews and Samaritans both claimed to worship the same God, they actually both claimed to worship Yahweh, uh, the historical God of the Israelites, the way they worshiped him was different. 
You see, while the Jews believed uh, that, that you needed to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the Samaritans believed that God needed to be worshiped on a different mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria. In fact, at one point, they even constructed a temple of their own on Mount Gerizim in in order to rival the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Jewish people showed up and tore it down. It was actually a huge religious controversy between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. And so when Jesus encounters these 10 lepers here and tells them to go show themselves to the priests, it actually would have created a bit of a religious controversy. Which priests, they could have asked. At what temple, on which sacred mountain, Are you talking about the priests at Mount Zion or the priests on Mount Gerizim? As Joel Green writes in his commentary here, simply to mention Samaria and refer to a Samaritan, as this account does, brings to the fore the fundamental point of division between Jews and Samaritans. This is the location of the divinely sanctioned place of worship, Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. Sending the lepers to the priests only exacerbates this problem since Jesus does not specify which priests they're supposed to go to. Clearly, they must journey to a temple where they will undergo an inspection, then presumably offer the sacrifice appropriate to one who has been declared clean. But to which temple? Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Against this backdrop, the act of the Samaritan is all the more startling because he does not travel to a temple, but he returns to Jesus. In other words, what Luke is telling us here is that in coming back to worship Jesus, this Samaritan is in a way settling this age-old debate between Jewish and Samaritan people. Where's the proper place to worship God? Jerusalem, Samaria, Mount Zion, Mount Gerizim? Neither, this Samaritan is saying. Instead, the proper place to worship God, as this Samaritan now recognizes, is Jesus Christ himself. Green continues, this Samaritan recognizes that the restorative power of God is manifest in Jesus. In recounting his action thus, Luke indicates that the socio-religious divisions between Jew and Samaritan have been mediated in Jesus. People who discern God at work through Jesus worship God at his feet. In other words, trust in Jesus, believing in him, recognizing him for who he truly is, changes our worship. Because suddenly, like the Samaritan, we no longer go about our worship in the same old way. Now when it comes to worshiping God, the rightful place to do that is at the feet of Jesus. We actually saw that enacted earlier in our service in a tangible way with Kennedy's baptism. It's because as part of her baptism, we baptized her in Jesus' name, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The reason we do that, even still today, is because like the Samaritan, we too recognize Jesus as the proper place to worship, the proper place to encounter God, the proper place to come and offer our praise and thanks to him as his people. That brings us to the next implication of this passage, though, which is that just as divisions in worship are brought to an end in Jesus, so are divisions in race and ethnicity. You know, I'm always a bit surprised when people ask what the gospel has to do with racial reconciliation. 
I actually hear that question a decent amount these days. Um, and I get that conversations about race and racism and racial reconciliation and all the rest have been co-opted uh, by political forces in our country. And I get that depending on where you stand politically, it may or may not be something that you want to talk about. It might be something that you don't want to talk about. But as Christians, we should talk about that. As Christians, we should care about racial reconciliation, and as Christians, we should work to fight and eliminate racism in our country and culture. That's because racism, I think, is one of the clearest examples of the kind of sinful brokenness between human beings that resulted from our fall into sin. Put simply, if we had never fallen into sin, we wouldn't have to deal with racism or a whole host of other social evils either. But we did fall into sin, and so we do have to deal with racism, including the racism that is still very much alive and well in our country and culture today. You see, when Christ eventually comes back to renew and restore his creation, racism is one of the many things that is going to get eliminated, eradicated, and wiped off the face of God's new creation. And as Christians, God's new creation people now, people who already embody that new creation in ourselves through the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to be participating in that work already. The, the way that scripture imagines us is actually as God's foot soldiers, his advanced troop, you know, his hopeful hint of everything that's still to come in his new creation. And so the fact of the matter is that part of our calling as believers is to work towards eradicating, eliminating, and wiping out all of the sins and evils, including racial division, that we see in our world today. That's what racial reconciliation has to do with the gospel. The, the gospel is the good news, in a, in a word, the gospel is the good news of the restoration and reconciliation of all things and so that includes restoration and reconciliation between different kinds of people. And that's something we see examples of all throughout scripture, including here in this text this morning. As Joel Green writes, the irony of this narrative so taken up with issues of perception, divine benefaction, and worship surfaces again in verse 18b with Jesus' description of the one leper as a foreigner. This term is found only here in the New Testament, but its etymology suggests its appropriateness as a label for one born to the wrong family. In terms of the rhetoric of the Lucan narrative, this former leper is thus classified as someone other than a child of Abraham, an outsider, at least according to the usual canons. This usage of this term in the context of temple worship in Jerusalem is also suggestive because there was, it, was found on, sorry, it was found on inscriptions that forbade foreigners from access to those areas of the temple available only to Jews. Jesus' use of the term is thus ironic indeed for he observes how this normally ostracized person has behaved in a manner appropriate to the authentic children of Abraham. That's maybe a bit convoluted. So let's look at the way Fred Craddock puts it in his commentary. He writes this, in leper colonies, the common problem of leprosy renders Jew-Gentile distinctions unimportant. Doesn't matter who you are, or what, what ethnic background you're from in a leper colony, you're all in that together. And then he says this, but not only in leper colonies, also in the presence of Jesus. Racial lines, racial divisions fall away in the presence of Christ. 
In other words, the Samaritans, looked down on by Jews, barred from worship at the temple and cast to the outskirts and fringes of society as racial half-breeds and thus impure persons in the presence of Jesus are accepted. They're suddenly made whole and pure and they're suddenly seen as equal together with the Jews before the face of God. That's why racial reconciliation is one of the implications of this text. It's part of the work of the church because as we see here and elsewhere, it's part of the work of our Savior himself as he reconciled all people to God through him. Finally, the last implication of this text has to do with the importance of gratitude. Put simply, gratitude is a major part of the Christian life. I would go so far as to say that being an ungrateful person is not compatible with being a Christian. Rather, gratitude, thanksgiving, ought to be a fundamental part of who we are in a primary way that others see and experience us as Christians. Gratitude is part of our witness. And when it comes to our gratitude, the first and constant recipient of it should be God. And T. Wright puts it this way in his commentary. It is not only the nine ex-lepers who are shown up, It is all of us who fail to thank God always and for everything, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5. We know with our heads, if we have any Christian faith at all, that our God is the giver of all things. Every mouthful of food we take, every breath of air we inhale, every note of music we hear, every smile on the face of a friend, a child, a spouse, all that and a million things more are good gifts from his generosity. There's an old spiritual discipline of listing one's blessings, naming them before God and giving thanks. It's a healthy thing to do, especially in a world where we too often assume we have an absolute right to health, happiness, and every possible creature comfort. What Wright is really saying there is that we don't deserve what we have. We don't deserve any of it. God didn't have to give us this world. He didn't have to fill it with the blessings that we enjoy. He didn't even have to create us in the first place. And yet he did. And so everything we have, from the least to the greatest, is all a gift. It's all his grace. It's all a blessing, undeserved and freely bestowed upon us from his fatherly hand. And so as a result, our response should be nothing less than constant gratitude to him. Which brings us to the gospel. The greatest gift we've been given. We said that this Samaritan leper was a double outsider. His race as a Samaritan made him an outsider. His disease as a leper made him an outsider too. And yet what we see in this text is that Jesus takes this outsider, this Samaritan leper, and in his grace, his mercy, and his incredible healing power makes him suddenly an insider. And God has done the same for us. You see, we too are outsiders, all of us. Regardless who we are, our background, our ethnicity, all the rest, because of our sin, we are all outsiders to God. And yet through Christ, God has called us back to himself. He's forgiven and healed us and he's made us people who were once far away from God. His children, his people, insiders capable of having a relationship with him once again. 
And as the Samaritan leper recognized here in our text, that changes everything. It changes our trust, making it so that we can trust in God even when we can't see where that trust leads. It changes our worship, calling us to give praise to God through Jesus. It changes our relationship with others, reconciling us to each other no matter our differences. And it changes our hearts, making us thankful people who can live in grateful response to God. That's the kind of savior Jesus is. That's the kind of redeemer we have. And that's the kind of people that he makes us through his grace. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we made ourselves outsiders to you. You created us in your image, made us for good, and called us to steward your world. That itself was grace. And yet we responded to your grace in sinful rebellion. We made ourselves outsiders to you. But you were not content to leave us alone, far off, distant from you. You sent us a savior. You called us back into relationship with you. As we saw in baptism this morning, you allowed us to die to our sin, and through Christ you raised us to new life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for that work ongoing in our lives as we continue to live and serve you as your people. And thank you for your grace in making us your people again. We pray this all in the name of the one who makes that possible, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.